Today's episode of the Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Thermo Fisher Scientific, offering innovative Gibco solutions to support your stem cell research workflow. Everybody, welcome to episode 60 STEM Centrics. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What's going on, Yos? How's it going over there, man? Oh, good. You know, got my cells back up after Atlanta, the World Stem Cell Summit. Uh, actually, that episode's going to air after this, so uh, hold tight on that. Um, so, Chris and I just were down there doing some interviews, and uh, it was good to see you again, buddy. <laughs> yeah, we had a good time in Hotlanta. We. Um we, we, we got uh, a bunch of people to come on and do a little interview, so we're, I think we're probably going to release this one um, maybe even in between episode 61. I'm not sure how we're going to do it because we have, I don't know, how, how long of interviews do we have? Do you know how many of the time we have? Yeah, we got about an hour of interviews, some great discussions with uh, Dustin Wakeman, remember, on the Parkinson's and that group yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. from OxoCell on umbilical cord banking. So uh, we got some interesting uh, and the beatboxing <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, that graduate student uh, person. I, I forget her name, but uh, she, she came on and uh, was started a student association for uh, graduates. Yeah, the, uh, the, inter- the um, oh, man. I forget the name of kill it. Me. Student Society for Stem Cell Research, I think. Yeah, that's what it is. That's it. That's uh, right. yes. Yeah, so we'll have our first beatboxing session <laughs> on the Stem Cell Podcast. But um, yeah, so we're back. We're back in town um, today. We have uh, the name of the show is Stem Centrics, which is a company out west and um, focusing on looking at the role of can- uh, stem cells in cancer and how they can target uh, target those cells in cancer. This idea has been around for a bit. So we'll talk to the uh, uh, co-founder and chief scientific officer Scott Dyla. Uh, he'll come on and join us for the interview, and uh, we'll ask him uh, some questions, um, which will be very interesting. They got a lot of uh, press in the news about their their company, so we'll 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 ask him about the company and what he's what he's got going on there. Um, so, we are the Stem Cell Podcast, the official podcast of the ISSCR, International Society for Stem Cell Research. Uh, ISSCR.org is the website. Registration now open for the meeting in San Fran, so go make sure you register. Um, we, as always, we are presented by uh, Thermo Fisher uh, Scientific, who um, you can go to our website, stemcellpodcast.com, and you can click on the banner, and what it will do is it will take you um, to the website for a 24-hour stem cell event. So today, Yosef and I, during the roundup, are not going to round up papers. What we're going to do is we're going to round up some of the presentations that you can go listen to um, on the website, on the 24-hour stem cell website. Um, so it's got a lot of content on there. There's a lot of talks. And there's some really good other um, resources like uh, panels and um, kind of 
um, training labs, if you will. So in a minute, we'll get to that, and we will um, make sure you know we're going to highlight some stuff. So it'll be a roundup. It's just going to be a roundup of these presentations and some really good people on there. Uh, let's see. Go to stemcellpodcast.com, sign up for the newsletter, and uh, let's see. What else do we got? This, this is our emails? last episode of the year, uh, so if we follow the the typical two-week schedule, so it's uh, it's kind of crazy, man. I feel like we should do... It doesn't feel like the end of the year quite yet to, to me. No, because it hasn't been that cold in the Northeast. I feel like that's why, too. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also but, pre-Christmas, so uh, yeah. I'm Merry Christmas in, out there, everyone! Happy yeah. holidays. So I'm not in yeah. that, uh, you know, end of the year mode. But you know, just before we start the roundup, uh, I have two. Well, the the modified roundup. I just have two sort of announcements. Now that it's the end of the year, and they're sort of brand new stories. Uh, did you see that the NIH uh, budget has? Uh, it's I did. part of the budget. It's been increased by two billion dollars. Saw that. It's uh, a start. It's good. That's great. Great. Yeah, it's so the first that, time in like what thirteen years or something like that, twelve years. Yeah, they increased the budget or something crazy. Yeah, so that's very good news. And just real quick, I want to highlight that uh, President Jimmy Carter is cancer free apparently. I saw. I know. Yeah, so uh, he went uh, three like pronged approach where they did surgery, chemo, and immunotherapy, which I think was the key here. They uh, blocked the immune checkpoint gene PD one, uh, which is programmed cell death and in the immune system, which basically releases the brakes off the immune system. It's a drug called Keytruda. And uh, it's, uh, you know, apparently he, the metastasized melanoma that was in his brain is no longer in his brain. So uh, congrats to him. Yeah, man, that's and, great. Uh, yeah. That's amazing, you know? Yeah, very much It so. really is amazing. Um, lastly, before I forget, before we get into this um, this 24-hour stem cell, Go to stemcellchat.com, everybody, and register and sign up for free for the online discussion panel that we set up so we can get our, our discussions going. So, all right, let's get into this. Let's do the roundup, um, hashtag Psy Roundup, and we will discuss this uh, event. So I got to tell you, though, it's pretty cool. Yos and I like went on there. If you haven't done there, it's like this virtual conference, literally, like when you log in. So the easiest way for you to get it is if you go to stemcellpodcast.com, we have a banner on the right side of the panel, and you'll see it. It says the third annual 24-hour stem cell event. Just click on the window, and it'll bring you to the page. And you can do it. It's there till March 3rd, 2016. So you'll have plenty of time to go on and access it. And you just, you know, you get a login. It's free. And then you can go into this virtual kind of room, right, Yos? And it's literally like a lobby. Yeah, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. I don't know. It reminds me of like one of those like 3D virtual worlds. So uh, I, I've yeah. never quite seen a a online, you know, uh, space like this where you can go. There's like a vendor section or exhibit section, and then there's the keynote speaker section and uh, live. You know, it's sort of like being at a conference on your computer. Uh, so it's got all the feels of, of a conference, except like obviously the hum of people talking in the background and walking around and all that stuff. So, uh, it's, I, I thought it was pretty well done. Um, yeah, it's very, very cool. And then there's, yeah, like you said, there's even like an exhibit hall where you can go in and like see like vendors and things like this. Um, so really you go in and there's, there's options. There's on-demand presentations. There's a whole bunch of them. There's um, live presentations, which are now obviously not live, but they're basically like keynote presentations. And then there's virtual lab. And the virtual lab is um, uh, 
Scaling uh, up and training. Uh, yeah, like so they even have like a little like cult cell, cell culture course kind of thing. So it's very cool. So go. So you go in the lobby and then you click. All right. So what I'll start with. Hold on, is, hold on. We we should mention, uh, by the way, that it only runs on Safari and Firefox. So if you're using Chrome, like I tend to use, it's not going to work very well, if at all. And uh, the you know. Uh, there's like an ev- event certification to complete activities. Uh, I don't, uh, you remember that? You get like 30 oh, points yeah. and you could possibly win a t-shirt or a hydro energetic yeah. electric clock if you're in China because you can't like send out t-shirts, I guess, to China. I know. That was cool. Yeah. So you basically, if you, if you view a certain number of presentations and keynotes, you'll like, you'll get like a certification and if you complete them all you can get this t-shirt. So make sure you try to get as much info as you can. So what we'll do is I've picked one keynote presentation and the three on-demand presentations, and I'm just going to run through mine first. I think it's probably a better way to do it. And then, Yos, maybe we'll talk a little bit about yours. And I'm not going to go into too much like detail here because the point of the talk is to go listen to the talk. You know, I'm just going to give you a little snippet. So the um, the keynote that I that I kind of viewed quickly... It went through because the keynotes are an hour long. Was by Bill Murphy, and it was on. It was called biomaterials. Biomaterials for assembly of stem cell derived human tissues. And so, really, this talks about this need, this new need for. We talk about these organotypic culture models, you know, these organoids, um, and basically, this our our current system of drug drug discovery and toxin screen, you know, screening, and how we need. There's you know an opportunity for a paradigm shift in how we basically identify new drugs for disease. So here, um, that they, they, what they're focusing on is talking about how they use IPS-derived cells that basically represent the diverse different characteristics of mature cells, uh, how they can create organotypic cell culture systems that are reproducible. I think that's the real challenge with org- organo- organoids, right? We talked about this with Flora Vaccarino, mm-hmm. getting a reproducible organoid system. And then how do you t- take and translate these organoid cell culture models to a scale that will allow high-throughput screening or basically a lot of drugs being screened at once? Because one thing to do it at small scale, it's another to do it at bigger scale. And then finally, it's taking once you can get that model get that system how you can use genomic analysis to really understand um what's changing uh in normally and then when you you give drugs to kind of counteract all right so the talk really emphasizes their recent studies uh which they have explored these uh organotypic vascular and neural tissues and uh these 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 tissues mimic critical aspects of human tissues and can be used for predictive neurodevelopmental toxicity and for the discovery of vascular disrupting compounds. So it's really cool. Um, it's very uh, new. Everything here is kind of cutting edge organoids, high throughput scale, and bioinformatics genomic analysis. So if you're into very high cutting edge uh, at larger scale screens, this is a cool presentation for you to check out. So this is in the on-demand or live presentation section. You click on that, and this is the biomaterial one. So, uh, okay, so now onto the on-demands. So this one's by Ye Lee. So tissue engineering of human IPS cells for endothelial cell regeneration and cardiac repair. Mm -hmm. All right, so, you know, obviously they're using IPS cells, and we know why those are important, because they can make all different cell types. And 
here, you know, I talk about cardiomyocytes, which are the, you know, um, the heart. muscle cells yeah. of the heart, uh, right? Cardiomyocytes, yeah, yeah, okay. Let me just get the smooth muscle cells are the ones that are not, not, not specific. Endothelial cells and smooth muscle cells, basically, if you can differentiate them from, from IPS, you could be useful for patients with heart disease uh, for autologous cell therapy and for testing new drugs in the, in, in the dish. So they describe a, a new and more efficient um, basic endothelial cell differentiation protocol from human-induced impl- human pluripotent stem cells that uses a 3D scaffold, which I like 3D. Uh, we, we just went to, in Atlanta, we went to uh, the Coke, Coca-Cola uh, factory there, Coca-Cola thing, and they had a 4D ride. Yo, so I never knew 4D, but it was 4D. What do you mean, the uh, time? This is a... Th- What's that? Time being the fourth dimension, or what? I don't fourth dimension. I think was that the seats actually moved. Oh, okay, which was kind of bizarre, like throwing me around in there. Um, all right, so basically here, um, these IPS cells are dissociated into single cells and seeded into this three D fibrin scaffold made of fibrinogen and thrombin. So the IPS cells are committed into mesodermal progenitor cells. Um, which is the you know derivative of the cardiomyocytes, the the um, germ layer, uh, and then they are induced into endothelial cells. So with a new protocol, they uh, the efficiency is increased to sixty percent uh, for this line and seventy five percent. They said the highest efficiency was eighty four percent, and both are lines that are derived from dermal fibroblast dermal fibroblasts. They have typical endothelial cell phenotypes uh, with upregulated gene and protein expression of typical markers like CD31, von Willebrand factor, and such. They have biological function. They take up these dyes. They form tubular structures on matrix gel, and they have high expression of notch and efferin, which suggests the differentiation protocol promotes arterial uh, ECs. So there's, remember, artery and vein. This is promoting arterial ECs. Um, and they continue to display these characteristics for four weeks in vitro. So this just describes a more robust way in a 3D fashion to generate endothelium from uh, IPS. Um, next is by um, Kristen Brennan, who I love. She's great work. Yeah, she's she great. was at the conference in Saratoga. Yep, modeling next-gen. She models predisposition to schizophrenia using human IPSCs. So it's, we know schizophrenia is a neurological disorder, um, and postmortem shows that they have reduced neuron size and spine density. Uh, but they don't understand the molecular mechanisms, so they re- they reprogrammed fibroblasts from schizophrenia patients and then differentiated them into neural progenitor cells, which are the cells that give rise to neurons and neurons, they, they did. And they looked at gene expression of their cells and six-week-old neurons from the Allen Brain Atlas, so six-week-old human fetal cells. Um, and they indicate that their derived neural cells from control in patients with schizophrenia most resemble fetal rather than adult brain. So these are really young, and schizophrenia patients present later in life. So um, this indicates that this model may not yet be suited for the study of the late features of the disorder, but rather it might give them an inkling to, you know, what what, what predisposition to schizophrenia might look like on on the kind of molecular network. All right, so they have these cells, now they differentiate. Um, Let's see, uh, what are my notes here? Um, they've already reported like aberrant migration and increased oxidative st- stress. So now they wanted to look at which genetic variants identified in these schizophrenic patients are casual contributors to the disease. Um, and they look at two individuals with large deletions. And I'm not going to go into the detail there. You'll have to go listen to, to really hear the detail on the deletions. And then they ultimately want to explore the relationship between genotype and neuronal function by restoring these mutations, you know, these bad mutations. Now with CRISPR technology, you can kind of correct them mm. and see how it would rescue the phenotype. So predisposition to, to, 
schizophrenia is a cool idea because that means that even though you don't present the disease till your 20s, maybe mid to late 20s, when you're early, even at the early fetal or very young stage, you have you can have signs of schizophrenia. And if you have these biomarkers, then we you know have a better idea how to diagnose and early treat the disorder. So that's a cool idea. Is there uh, a biomarker? There's no biomarker for schizophrenia, no. so that'd be that huge. Yeah, that'd be great. So this last one is identification of key regulators for stem cell self-renewal and differentiation by high-throughput functional screens. So this is by Jean Liu, and they are looking to identify key factors that govern stem cell self-renewal and differentiation through gain and loss of function. So they looked at uh, shRNA screens. So they... Uh, they had, let's see, shRNA, which is short hairpin RNA, which are RNAs that basically knock down messenger RNA or mo- knock down gene expression. They used like 5,200 shRNAs. They identified 143 candidates that are essential for ex- ESC expansion and pluripotency. Uh, let's see, 156 genes affect only cell number and nine genes block stem cell expansion and pluripotency. And then they go through how they confirm this and things like that. Um, Let's see, by an unbiased throughput screen with 12,380 full-length genes in primary human bone marrow mesenchymal stem cells, they looked at mesenchymal next, they identified at least nine novel proteins that are essential and sufficient for bone formation. That's so cool. really they were, Yeah, that's cool. So they're looking just at key regulators of stem cell self-renewal and differentiation by using these high-throughput functional screens. It's a really cool talk. Go check that out. And so lastly, I'll just point this out. There is a panel discussion. The panel was on the path towards scalable, xeno-free applications for regenerative medicine, and it features people like Tiago Fernandez, Dan Paul there from NYSEF, who we hung out with in Atlanta, um, and uh, Emily Titus. And they just talk about um, um, the ability to enable better, more physiological, relevant disease model systems. So um, uh, these are like a panelists in this live session. Will They discuss their path to deriving these pluripotent stem cells at large scale. So those are four uh, four presentations I recommend you go check out. Um, there's also training labs on there, like we said. So I'll turn it over to Yost, and he'll give you a little snippet into his. Speaking of uh, those labs, uh, the training labs, they're also in Chinese, Japanese, and Korean translations available on that website, too. So uh, they're trying to you know get all of Asia, essentially, uh, with the website. So uh, real quick, in the interest of time, I'm just going to highlight, uh, you mentioned Dan Paul. He also gave another talk on there. Uh, he's from the New York Stem Cell Foundation. We actually got to hang out with him a little bit after mm-hmm. the conference, uh, which was fun. Uh, so shout to Dan Paul. Uh, he His talk is called Toward Large-Scale Functional Genomic Studies uh, Through the Automation of IPSC Derivation, Expansion, and Differentiation. So um, basically going over uh, the results of the array data uh, using essentially machines to generate uh, stem cell lines. And we've had Dr. Scott Noggle on uh, to talk about that, those results. Uh, I'm not sure what episode that is, but uh, it's in the 50s, right, (laughs) Chris? um, Yeah, it was 53, 53. Great. Uh, so there was Dr. Su Jung Shin from Thermo. She gave a nice presentation on the differentiation of midbrain floor, floor plate 
progenitors and dopaminergic neurons from human pluripotent stem cells. Now, Chris can tell you all about the floor plate. He pretty much developed the protocol on uh, how to generate floor plate from uh, human ES cells uh, back when he was in the Studer lab. And uh, they essentially show, uh, give a nice talk about the defined uh, media that they have to generate and uh, freeze down some of these dopamine neurons for transplantation. Uh, so that's Dr. Su Jung Shin. And then, uh, Dr. Jesper Erickson. He, I know he's, uh, one of the listeners of the, uh, Stem Cell Podcast. Uh, just saying hello to him and his talk. Uh, he's from Biolamina. So they have this product called Laminin 521, which is really great for, uh, growing, uh, human ES cells on or IPS cells on. And, uh, very clean, sort of, you know, it's not all messy like Matrigel. So, uh, the t- name of his talk is the laminin uh, protein family key to stem cell culture. So laminin being the first, I didn't know this, it's the first extracellular matrix protein. It's expressed even at the two cell stage. So back when you were a little zygote, uh, laminin was being expressed uh, at the two cell stage. And Interestingly, showed that uh, the rock inhibitor is not needed when you passage uh, onto five two one cells. So it's that sticky that I guess they don't need that rock inhibitor uh, to get to you know with single cell uh, growth. So and uh, finally uh, another friend of the podcast, he gave a keynote presentation, Doctor Evangelos Kishkinis. Yep. Yes, uh, so. He gave a nice, you know, I I recommend everybody check out the visualizations in one of his slides. Uh, we're actually going to have an episode on this technique called the opto patch, and uh, so. The name of his talk, I should say, is Probing Disease Mechanisms in ALS or Amelotrophic uh, Lateral Sclerosis. Yeah, Yeah, I always screw that first word up. Um, Using IPSCs, reprogramming, and optogenetic approaches. So uh, what I really want to highlight is the opto patch uh, results, which he shows uh, the videos. Actually, the first time I saw it was at uh, the Saratoga, the next-gen conference that Chris holds. And uh, it's basically, you'll see visualization of neurons firing, uh, which is really just an amazing... It looks like clouds, uh, for, you know, uh, from space when you look down at a, a lightning storm. He, that's what his rat neuronal cultures look like. Uh, these primary cultures and neurons, you can actually see the f- neurons lighting up and firing. So they look like it's really cool. Yeah. So, uh, that talk is, uh, under the keynote, uh, presentations and, uh, highly recommend it. Uh, you at least check out the visualization there. So, uh, that's it for me. And, uh, Watching them fire is awesome. Yeah, I, 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 I'm really bullish on this technology. I mean, I don't, I don't know how the electrophys people feel about it. They're probably like, "Oh, this is a threat to my rig and my <laughs> monopoly." But uh, I, I see this being used in high throughput screens in the future. Uh, you know, testing IPSC derived neurons and uh, how they how they respond to uh, different whatever screens you're doing. So. Um, I'm really bullish on that technology. So uh, I'm looking forward, to actually, to our episode on that. So uh, we're going to have Dr. Andy Cohen on in the future, and uh, he'll discuss some of that uh, work that he's done with Kevin Egan to get this working. So uh, I guess that's it, huh? 
cool, man. Yeah, so go check all those out. And uh, there's a lot more you can see. It's at um, stemcellpodcast.com. Click on the banner for 24 hours stem cells, and um, it'll take you there. And you can see all of these and more. So I think with that, we'll move on to get Scott on. Um, we'll, we'll do that right now. Okay, so um, it's our, our pleasure to have our guest for today, uh, Dr. Scott Dyla. And Scott is the uh, co-founder and chief scientific officer of Stemcentrics, which uh, he co-founded in 2008 and is responsible for overseeing the company's R&D activities, research, and development. So just a quick intro. Scott received a bachelor's degree in biochem and molecular biology. That's my major. I thought really no one else majored in that boring stuff. Uh, from the University of Minnesota Duluth, uh, and a master's degree in basic medical science, uh, and then a Ph.D. in cancer biology and immunology from University of Minnesota. Scott trained as a postdoctoral scholar at Stanford University in the lab of the godfather, Dr. Irving Weissman, Whoa. where he was uh, awarded an American Cancer Society and Stanford Immunology Fellowship. Um, Scott was recognized by the British Council as one of eight outstanding young U.S.-based researchers in the field of stem cell biology and is currently a member of Stemcentrics Board of Directors. And so Stemcentrics is a, is a, is a company that, that we're going to hear the mission of um, from Scott right now. So let me welcome Scott to the show. Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thank you, and, and thanks for the kind introduction. No problem. So the way we like to start, please, for the audience, would you just give Give a little introduction to yourself as a scientist, you know, you're just a little into your training and, and how you found yourself into the world of stem cells. Sure, sure. So maybe I'll start back at the beginning. So I actually grew up in Rochester, Minnesota, which is the home of the Mayo Clinic. And so although my parents did not work at the Mayo Clinic and were not in the medical field, um, it was certainly uh, surrounded by a lot of physicians and a lot of my classmates in high school um, worked at the Mayo Clinic. Um, so, um, but during that time when I was living in Rochester, my grandmother had leukemia um, and had come to town to be treated at the Mayo Clinic. And I distinctly remember um, uh, the, the physicians there telling my mom that, you know, she was going to die within the next week or two of her leukemia, which she had been battling for a while, and um, that we needed to get our affairs in order. So, you know, understandably, my mom was very distraught by that, and uh, I remember trying to console her um, at the time. I think I was maybe 12 or 13 years old, and my grandmother ended up living another, you know, two or three years, actually, and so that whole um, circumstance really made an impression on me at the time that, you know, I was told, and I think it's widely viewed, that physicians at the Mayo Clinic are among the best in the world, but they don't understand cancer, Right. It was very distressful for my mom to think that she had no more time left with my grandmother, but that ended up not quite being true. So that's kind of always um, stuck in my mind uh, throughout my education, and I'd always had an interest in, uh, in, in medicine and potentially becoming an MD and eventually pursuing my, my doctorate. Um, so that, that's the underlying reason for my interest in biology, um, biochemistry, molecular biology, were a new major, kind of as I was in the middle of my undergraduate degree in the mid-90s. So I, I ended up at uh, the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where I was pursuing a degree in molecular and cellular pathobiology, a doctorate degree, um, but ended up transferring out of that program um, and uh, defending a master's dissertation. Uh, and at the time, I was working in insulin resistance and not cancer. So when I transferred to the University of Minnesota, 
I had identified a researcher working on uh, leukemia, stem and progenitor cells, and of course my grandmother died of leukemia, so it was of great interest. Um, and there I ended up getting my PhD with uh, Dr. Catherine Verfai, who's doing a lot of uh, seminal work at the time in uh, uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia and defective integrin signaling uh, in that disease, but um, since then has kind of been more famous for some of her work in adult stem and progenitor cells, um, which was a, a new pursuit at, when I was in the lab there. Um, so that's how I got back into or got into stem cell biology was during that a PhD degree working on leukemia stem and progenitor cells in leukemia. Um, and then uh, I had a, a number of outstanding options for postdocs coming out of my doctorate. Um, and, you know, one of those opportunities was to work with Irv Weissman. And I had a lot of interest at the time in uh, gene therapy, um, but it was at a time in the late 90s where gene therapy was stumbling in the clinic and uh, as I took a view at the field, I really thought that for gene therapy to work, uh, ultimately we needed to be transducing stem cells, so these genes would be long-lived, and we're, we're better to, to gain more experience with stem cells than with her voicemen, and so I, I joined his lab uh, in, in uh, 2002. Um, so while I was in Irv's lab working on a number of regenerative medicine projects and collaborating with Katrina Jamison and Lori Ailes, uh, who were also in Irv's lab on CML. Um, my That's benchmate was working myeloid. on solid tumor I'm sorry, cancer just, stem cells. Yep. Uh, I just want to define, we try to define uh, all acronyms on the show. So the CML oh, is I'm chronic sorry. myeloid leukemia. Chronic myelogenous leukemia. Myelogenous, yep. No problem. Should I back up or? No, you're okay. Go ahead. We just, we just, I, you know why, Scott? I do it a lot too, and Yosef always makes sure I, I do it. Yosef's like, yeah, the ac no, he's I the understand. acronym, he's the acronym police. So, sorry, go, no go ahead, go ahead, continue. No, no worries. Um, so, so I was able in Irv Weissman's lab to keep a toe in the chronic myelogenous leukemia by collaborating with Katrina Jameson and Lori Ailes. Um, but my benchmate, uh, Lori Ailes, was also working on solid tumor cancer stem cells, which was a new paradigm in cancer biology, and one of the um, thought leaders in that new paradigm was Irv Weissman. So I happened to be in that in that lab as that paradigm was being raised. Um, and my projects were going well, um, but I knew I wanted to stay in the Bay Area. And, um, at, and at that time, in late 2004, um, an opportunity arose to join uh, Oncomed Pharmaceuticals, was, which was just opening its doors um, and that was the company started by Mike Clark, Max Wisha, and Sean Morrison based on their identification of breast cancer stem cells at the University of Michigan. And so I decided to leverage my background in cancer biology and stem cell biology to go there as the third scientist and ninth employee and really just kind of open the lab. Um, and that was a, a great experience. So that's how I got into stem cell biology and um, how I got into this field of solid tumor cancer stem cell biology. And since 2005, I've now been working in industry to identify these cells, identify targets, and develop therapies that uh, we hope impacts survival. So before, Scott, before I get into stem centrics and the mission of the company, can you, can you give everybody a, like a very brief uh, concept of why of, of the stem cell and cancer and, and kind of the hypothesis surrounding that? Sure. So, you know, every tissue in our body is constantly regenerating and 
the only long-lived cells in our bodies are, are stem cells. So for example, um, your large intestine, your small intestine is constantly turning over and in two months from now, your entire intestinal tract will be completely new cells. And the only cells that are long-lived are stem cells. So if you take that fact into consideration, along with the fact that it's widely recognized you need multiple mutations to result in cancer, it really stands to reason that only normal stem cells can accrue these mutations over time to ultimately result in cancer. And it's pretty clear that cancer generally... Um, incidences associated with age. As we get older, we have more mutations accruing. Ultimately, that N plus 1 mutation will result in cancer uh, manifesting. So I think the concept um, is, is very clear that cancer must arise from normal stem cells, and a cancer stem cell is basically the semantics behind the cell driving tumor growth and tumor recurrence. And it may or may not have the same identity as a normal stem cell from the same tissue. Okay, and so then now it's 2008 and uh, the company is founded. And tell us a little bit about, you know, why it was founded and what the, what the mission of the company is. Sure. So, you know, Oncomed was a great learning experience. And, and I got to watch the company grow from a few people to more than 65. And at the time I left, they were primed. Uh, to enter the clinic with a handful of drugs and do have a, a number of drugs in clinical development now. Um, I had several opportunities to lead groups in large pharma and new startups at the time and ended up deciding to to blaze my own trail here with a, a friend of mine, and he and I founded StemCentrics in 2008. And our mission you know, is similar to the mission of many other companies, but that's to uh, cure or significantly impact survival for cancer patients and we do use the C word here. You know, we think if you don't aspire um, to be great, you will never be great. And so that that is our mission. Yeah, I have no problem with the C word. I think for everyone, uh, we're talking about the word cure, right? Yeah, contamination, cure. Um, I have no. I know a lot of people that stray away from that, and I understand. You know, there's that whole thing in in the world that we live in a false hope. You know, you don't want to say cure and give people this idea of false hope, but. If you're not in the end, if you're not in it to cure, then I don't know what we're in it for. So I agree with that sentiment, um, and uh, you know, try not to shy away from from saying that. Anyway, that's kind of a, another maybe a semantic thing to talk about for another time. Um, so you know, I know. You know, the idea of these cancer stem cells have been around for a while. You know, you have to kill the cancer stem cell to kill cancer. Um, so can you talk about that in terms of what's been out there and, and, you know, in a very kind of general, obviously, not much detail about what Stemcentrics is doing, kind of, uh, you know, is there a different sort of approach or something you can tell us that's a little bit different, you know, because I know this idea of cancer stem cells has been out for a while. Uh, sure, it has been out for a while, and I and I can't answer you know the question for other groups, but I can tell you about how we're thinking about it and how we're we're approaching it. So um, we agree with the idea that uh, you have to kill cancer stem cells to impact long-term survival. I mean, if you're not going to kill them, they are going to drive recurrence, and you need to get all of them in order to eventually get to that cure. And so. Uh, we at StemCentrics believe that the best way to do that is to actively kill the cancer stem cells by delivering potent cytotoxins uh, targeted by monoclonal antibodies using target proteins unique to cancer and or cancer stem cells and not expressed on normal tissue uh, so you can or normal tissue stem cells so you have 
a nice therapeutic index and you can go in and, and, and kill the cells that are going to drive any tumor recurrence or resistance. Um, so in the context of the, the science translational medicine paper you referred to earlier, um, we identified uh, in small cell lung cancer DLL3 or delta-like protein 3 as a protein that has that type of profile that is highly expressed on the cancer stem cell. It's unique to tumors. It's not expressed at the protein level in any normal tissues. And so we're able to leverage that as a Trojan horse to deliver these potent cytotoxins uh, to the uh, target cells and the target cancer stem cells that would ultimately um, are responsible for tumor growth and tumor recurrence. Um, and we've now uh, we are actually our clinical investigators and not necessarily we have presented data uh, on clinical data uh, with that drug uh, and, and other drugs. We actually have five drugs in clinical trials, all of which are targeted to cancer stem cell populations. And data has been discussed now for three of those drugs at last year's ASCO meeting, American Society of Clinical Oncology, the World Lung Cancer Conference, which was held in Denver last September, and the European Society of Medical Oncology Conference, uh, each respectively um, discussing for the first time clinical data on three of these novel antibody drug conjugates that target cancer stem cells associated with proteins discovered and developed by stem centrics. And the emerging data shows that, you know, there is a very nice single agent activity that can be achieved at doses and regimens with manageable safety profiles. So just to uh, sum that up, so Notch is like a stem cell receptor, right? It's it's a receptor that a lot of stem cells, uh, including neural stem cells, uh, express, correct? You're correct, but uh, Notch can promote uh, differentiation or it can promote self-renewal depending on the tissue you're discussing. And so in the context of neuroendocrine, tissue, um, the notch receptor family promotes um, uh, 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 promotes self, uh, self cell, let me let me get this right. Notch inhibition promotes neuroendocrine differentiation, right? Uh, which is the opposite of a lot of epithelial tissues, where it promotes self-renewal. Mm. Yeah, and this has been well established in literature and developmental biology literature. Um, and this delta-like protein is an atypical notch ligand in that unlike the other notch ligands, it actually has been shown to inhibit notch signaling, and it does that by interacting with notch 1 and DLL1 and retaining them inside the cell and preventing them from activating notch signaling in trans. Notch is one, um, of, those, so, notch is one of those weird receptors where it like breaks apart and then goes into the nucleus to activate genes. It's that internal uh, the ICD, ICD right yeah. the intracellular domain is that right does that remember correct. that correct old yes. notch signaling the, and and for everybody out there too uh, who's who's you know maybe not as hardcore in the science here notch is also interesting because its ligands are also can be kind of like receptors that are on the surface of other cells. So the more cells are together uh, and kind of touching, the more active the signaling pathway is, rather than the traditional lock-key mechanism where you have floating ligands that bind up. So just just uh, when cells are really close and tight together, they tend to have active... Uh, yeah, what is that? Lateral uh, inhibition, right? Lateral inhibition uh, to keep the stem cells stemmy. Yeah, man, know. that's old school yeah. development right there. Yeah. You're, uh, you're, you're talking <laughs> I like that. Um, so maybe this, I don't know, Scott, maybe this is a good transition 
question just for us to get a little bit deeper into the science for uh, the hardcore scientists out there for the last little bit here and uh, before we do a little transition there was a paper um, published, I think, in August, end of August, in Science Translational Medicine. You're talking about this neuroendocrine tumor-initiating cells um, and talking about this DLL3 antibody. Um, so would you just give us a little snippet into what that paper was, was, was telling, was, was saying, and, and, and the conclusion there? Sure. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I'll go through the paper briefly. So for decades in, in small cell lung cancer, for those people who don't know, it represents about 15% of all lung cancer, um, which accounts uh, equates to about 32,000 newly diagnosed patients a year in the U.S., but it has the worst outcome of all lung cancers. So the five-year survival is generally less than 5%. Um, and so for the last 30 to 40 years, the standard of care has not changed for this disease, and it's been a toxic chemotherapy regimen of cisplatin and atopicide. And uh, it's been recognized that the biology of the disease is largely uh, driven by P53 and RB mutations, retinoblastoma mutations. And... Um, it's been shown that downstream of those, a transcription factor called uh, ASCUT-like-1 or ASCL-1 is highly expressed in these neuroendocrine tumors. And so uh, take uh, that high ASCL-1 um, expression uh, as one point. And the other point is, uh, as I mentioned previously, notch pathway inhibition has been shown in these neuroendocrine tissues to drive neuroendocrine cell fates. And so we started by working with small cell lung cancer xenografts. We identified tumor-initiating cells within these tumors. And when we performed whole transcriptome sequencing on that isolated cell population, we found expression of delta-like protein 3 to be very high. Now, delta-like protein 3 appeared on a list of genes uh, in a 2009 paper um, by Doug Ball, where he knocked down ASCL1 expression with hairpins and shown that DLL3 was among a list of genes that uh, was downstream of ASCL1. So that kind of tied in nicely with what the known biology uh, in ASCL1's role in neuroendocrine cell fates and small cell lung cancer. So uh, we generated antibodies to DLL3, which, as I mentioned, is thought to be retained in the Golgi and never reached the cell surface. And using these antibodies, we showed that in the context of cancer, where it's overexpressed, it does reach the cell surface, and it internalizes very quickly. Um, so not only that, but using the immunohistochemistry antibodies and RT-PCR and other methods, we showed that there's, again, a lot of expression on cancer stem cells and cancer and not on normal tissue, and because it internalizes quickly, we could then leverage an antibody and an antibody drug conjugate to deliver a potent cytotoxin. And so the manuscript at the end shows that by targeting these potent cytotoxins to tumor-initiating cells in small cell lung cancer and large-cell neuroendocrine carcinoma, we can effectively eradicate the tumor-initiating cells. Uh, we do not see tumors recurring in most models where there's high DLL3 expression in the cancer stem cell. And, um, and we, you know, that served as the platform for initiating clinical trials given the promising activity preclinically. Cool. So you deliver this sort of like, uh, this, what's, what it, what's the cytotoxin? It's, it's a, is it a chemotherapy sort of 
drug or yeah it's a it's a toxin that's much more potent than your traditional chemotherapies so the toxin we use is called a pyrolobenzodiazepine dimer or a pbd and it intercalates into the minor groove of dna and causes interstrand crosslinks and so it's a cell cycle independent toxin that will kill cells as they try and generate and try and transcribe rna or replicate um, but unlike cisplatin, which has a, a, a similar mechanism of action, um, it does not distort DNA, and so it tends to evade the typical DNA damage repair mechanisms that cisplatin and those class of less potent chemotherapies activate. So I, I mean, for the, for, I know maybe for the, the scientists out there who can follow this, they're you know intrigued by the science, and for the people that are not in the hardcore science, they may be intrigued by the concept. I know a lot of people, a lot of people we talk to, I know Joseph, and I, I'm in the neural world, but people always ask me about stem cells and cancer because cancer is so ubiquitous, and mo- most people know someone who has had cancer has cancer, and so um, this offers a intriguing, maybe new way to. Uh, or approach at at cancer uh, and to 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 the fight and battle of cancer, uh, and I, I I know as being a scientist that it's a really cool high tech way um, to kind of approach this. So everybody out there should keep an eye out on stem uh, stem centrics and check out what they have going on. And you can go read more about it online. And so lastly, Scott, I want to just kind of uh, do this for the people out there who are. Um, you know, scientists in training or doing in their PhD or postdoc or a master's. And, you know, we had Harold Varmus on back in the day, and we were talking about science and jobs, you know, and how the tradition that used to be either have your own lab or go into industry. And I think a lot of people are saying have your own lab is really what you need to do, and industry is kind of the fallback, if you will, you know. And I think nowadays we know that having your own lab is, a not very uh, not a not a very easy road to attain, and even when you attain it, it's hard to maintain. And so, with all of these new biotechs and all of this area growing in industry, there's plenty of of really interesting and exciting jobs out there. So, can you just quickly tell everybody your experience in the transition from the bench into the uh, kind of corporate biotech world? Sure, and I and I think I've been very fortunate to essentially have my own lab in industry um, in both my biotech experiences. And there's certainly a lot of small biotech out, biotechs out there where there are those opportunities. Um, but just like every academic lab is different and every university department is different, every company is also different. So the culture, the flexibility to pursue uh, new science. So I think you know everybody thinking about joining a company um, or thinking about industry, uh, as they evaluate those opportunities, they really need to determine if the company, the position, and the job description are right fit for them and what their goals are for their career growth. Um, I think the major difference between academia and industry is is the focus on translating the science into new therapies. Not that academia doesn't do that, but in industry, that that's pretty much the only focus. And, uh, and so the t- you ha- you're working with a team of people all striving towards that same goal to get, you know, novel therapies into humans as quickly as possible. And there's a lot of expertise you don't encounter in academia that you can leverage uh, to do that quickly. So I uh, was more of an academic at heart when I joined industry, but I, I definitely fell in love uh, with the environment um, and again, feel fortunate to have had the opportunities to do a lot of innovative science 
um, while in industry. And I think I think there is a lot of innovative science done throughout industry, and I do think uh, there's there's the misconception within a lot of academia that that is not true. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm getting the sense that this is personal for you, right? Well, the mission to cure cancer is definitely personal. But I think it's you know personal for everybody who works in this space. I mean, we all know people who've had cancer that have been close to us, and it's why it's a, a personal mission. And Scott, I mean, I don't know, is there, uh, are there any, for everyone listening, are there available positions open at your company? Can people go online and, and check out maybe potential openings? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and uh, so uh, if people check out our website, uh, www.stemcentrics.com, uh, right now we have about 40 to 50 positions open uh, across various different areas of the company, and we're definitely in a huge growth phase um, and are also continuing to invest in research to find the next targets and the new indications like pancreatic cancer, colorectal cancer, acute myeloid leukemia, um, and then leverage our pipeline and our ability to manufacture drugs, which is unique to stem-centrics. We have our own manufacturing facility, um, which dramatically cuts timelines to get drugs into clinical trials um, and would encourage people, if they're interested, to, to look and see if there's anything that's of interest. Very cool. So it's stemcentrics, S-T-E-M-C-E-N-T-R-X.com. And last thing, Scott, on your website, there's a guy on a mountain uh, just hanging out there. Is that you or no, that's oh, not you? No, no, that is, <laughs> that is not me, but it is, it is, uh, it is a friend of the company. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we really fell in love with that picture and, uh, and uh, the hope and novelty that I, I think uh, – uh, our company is uh, is uh, represents. All right. Well, he's Scott Diala. They are STEM Centrics. Really awesome stuff. Scott, thank you for a little bit of time and uh, happy holidays, man. Thank you. You too. Have a good day. All right. You too. Okay. There you have it. Nice little interview there. Very very cool. STEM STEM Centrics. Go check it out. Uh, they have a website. You could read more about it. Uh, very very cool. Um, all right. So well, now we got the rant. Yosius gave me some rants to choose, and uh, we're going to go with this one. Go ahead, man. Yeah, we're going with the science one again. Uh, this is, well, last one was about uh, Celsius versus Fahrenheit, so this one's more like lab related, I should say. So, uh, although you mentioned that it could also be used in real life, so the rant is essentially when you can't get something to dissolve into solution. So a lot of the times you have to take like a powder and put it into PBS or whatever media that you're working with. And so, you know, this powder just won't dissolve in solution. So something like BSA, bovine serum albumin, is that correct? Something yeah, like, bovine yeah. serum albumin, yeah. Yeah, so you get something like BSA and you're trying to make, say, a 1% solution and you measure it out and you're just trying to get this stuff to dissolve and this powder is just persisting and you're like, so you go over to this agitator, this like, how would you describe an agitator? It just like vibrates really hard. Yeah, just something that really shakes, shakes really good. And you'll get that vortex going. It looks like, you know, a little tornado and you're like, yes, it's going to dissolve. And then boom, it's still sticking around. So you're like, what do I do? Do I heat this up? (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, anybody who's done science has probably come across this, trying to get something to dissolve and it just won't do it. Yeah, and especially if you're trying to use it like quickly, and then you put it in there, and then you realize, like, 
uh, you know, it's going to take like a half hour. Sometimes you like jack up the temperature a lot, like just to, like if you put a lot of heat on there on the stir plate, you can get it to go in quicker, but then you're not really sure. Yeah, I used uh, to do that like when what's going to happen with the heat. You know what I mean? Yeah, I used to do that with uh, when I would make my own PFA paraformaldehyde. Uh, that that would just take forever, and it has to be the right pH and the right temperature, and yeah, it's uh, you get that hot plate going, and it's like, oh, uh, uh, this could actually be another ramp. But maybe we did do it with the stir bar. I think we did do that once, where the stir bar just goes crazy, and uh, you're trying to get it to you know go in solution. The stir bar just yeah, goes yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling it's really frustrating. Things certain things just don't go into solution very well. Like and they have limits, like upper tolerance limits. Like you can't it's soluble up to this concentration and like you're trying to get it to like just close to that limit. Yeah. And uh like it's right at the right at the upper edge. And so so this could be maybe related to if you're like cooking or baking or something and you need to make like a sugar solution or something. Sugar goes in fairly easily. And I've never really come across anything in the kitchen that doesn't really go in well. But um, I'm trying to think, there's something that like maybe I don't know, you use like a like one of those lemonade mixes or like a fruit punch <laughs> mix or something like that. You get like the sediment or the iced tea on oh, the bottom because yeah, you the put worst. too much in compared to the water. Yeah. And you stir it and stir it and stir it, and you just doesn't go in. It just kind of sits on the bottom. Then when you get to the bottom of the drink, it's just like <laughs> sugar, like right, it hits you all at once. I find this to be a problem when I get uh, in the summertime. I'll get like a iced coffee and most places in america don't have ice uh, you know liquid sugar so they just you put your sugar packet in especially brown sugar and in the iced coffee and at the bottom you're sipping with a straw and at the bottom is this undissolved like repository of brown sugar and i'm like oh man why don't they have liquid sugar so i could really get it dissolved in there you know it just won't you know that's why i like you can do simple simple syrup where like you heat up it's like it's equal parts sugar and water. So you mm-hmm. put you like heat up the water, cup of water, and you put a cup of sugar in. You stir it up, and uh, you get simple syrup. So it's like dissolved sugar. So if you're making a drink, you add it in because, like you said, if you're making like an iced coffee, and you put in a packet of sugar, it's, it's cold. It doesn't really go in. It just sits in the bottom. So if you add like a simple syrup. It's liquid sugar, so it goes in immediately. So that's like a good way for when you're making cocktails. Don't put sugar in. Make a simple syrup. It's really simple. Yeah, but one equal t- parts water, sugar. I think my rant's inspired by making like one percent BSA. Man, I, I think I spent like all because it's so fluffy and it just hangs out on the top. And you're like, come on, get in the solution and just get in there. And uh, I'll put it on the stir bar. The stir bar starts doing the break dance. You know when it falls off the middle, the center, and is uh, I. I think BSA is my real problem right now. But uh so. Yeah, no, I hear you on BSA. I was just I'm trying to relate it back to people that aren't making like a one percent BSA solution. <laughs> yeah, They're probably yeah. like, wait, what the hell? Uh anyway, so uh that's, that's that it, for right? ep- episode sixty, Yos. Yeah. Um last one happy, of the year. Merry Christmas. And uh if I don't if we don't do anything before the new year, happy new year, but I think we're gonna sneak another episode out. Everybody out there, happy holidays. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you on sixty one. All right. Happy New Year and uh, see you in 2016.